All right, look with me in Psalm 35. Psalm 35. Like I said, we have begun a a journey through the Psalms, and we're basically taking one Psalm a week for the most part and focusing on that Psalm. And if you peek ahead, you'll see that, that there are 150 chapters And so it's going to take us a while to get through them, but we made it all the way to Psalm 35. And it's been uh, a great study thus far and some really, really helpful stuff tonight. Really practical, helpful stuff. uh, Thought-provoking things for us to think through together tonight. And so I think that you will be glad that you came and that you'll get something out of this study of Psalm uh, 35. Uh, Before I pray and ask God to bless our time together studying God's Word, there's a summary of the Psalms that I've given you every week. Uh, Kendall Easley uh, has written a wonderful book which summarizes every book of the Bible. And his summary of the Psalms, in, in terms of the major theme of the Psalms, is this. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So I love the Psalms because they're raw, they're honest. You see just about every emotion you can think of at some point surface in the Psalms, and yet no matter what's going on, no matter what the emotion is of the moment, you see the psalmist praising God, clinging to Him, trusting Him, confidence in Him. And so it's really helpful to help us to understand that whether life is good or life is bad, God is worthy of our praise. And whether life is good or life is bad, God is worthy of our trust, right? And so the Psalms remind us of this time and time and time and time again, and that's true of Psalm 35. Now, Psalm 35 is a little bit longer psalm, and so we're not going to read the entire psalm at first. I'm going to read just a few verses, then we'll look at the rest of it as we work our way through the text. Let's start there in Psalm 35, verse 1. Notice this is a psalm of David. He says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Is it okay to ask God to fight? We'll talk some more about that in a few moments. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Now he's asking God to take up some weapons. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like shaft before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. So let's pray together. And we're going to ask God to bless our time Together, Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to pause in the, in the busyness of life and focus solely and exclusively upon you. And so, Lord, as we come to study your word, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word. And God, give us the inclination to take your word and apply it to our lives. We really want to honor you. And so, God, uh, just use uh, your word in our lives for your glory. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I've, I've titled this psalm, How to Face Evil. It's a how-to psalm, and 
we learn from looking at David's example how we are to face evil. And if, if you just look around a little bit in your life, you'll see there's no shortage of evil out there, right? And how are Christians to face evil? How are Christians to face enemies? And there are some really helpful things uh, in this psalm. Now, this is one of four, I'm going to give you a big word here, imprecatory psalms. And that's spelled I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-O-R-Y, imprecatory And the reason I give you that word is because you may come across it if you're reading a book about the Psalms or a commentary. So I want you to be familiar with the word imprecatory. Uh, An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where a a person is praying for God to to overthrow enemies, uh, calling for God's judgment against others, sometimes using some very graphic and descriptive language. And there are elements of imprecatory psalms all throughout the Psalter, but there are four major psalms which are classified as imprecatory psalms. Psalm 7, Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And they kind of get more intense as you go through those four psalms. By the time you get to Psalm 109, it is uh, uh, the psalmist is pronouncing curse after curse after curse against his enemies, asking God to curse uh, the enemies that have come against him. And so... Uh, they're interesting to study, and it's interesting for us to think about as Christians, how are we to process imprecatory psalms, praying for God to judge and overthrow and defeat uh, enemies. And so we'll talk about that, how Christians are to think about imprecatory psalms. Is Psalm 35 any, anything to say to us, or is this kind of an Old Testament thing that we just need to leave alone? So I want to just answer those questions by looking at four principles from this psalm. Four Principles from this psalm. Principle number one. This is so simple, it almost goes without saying, but we need to say it. You ready? When we are in trouble, we need help. It's pretty simple, isn't it? When we are in trouble, we need help. David is in trouble. Now, again, it's hard to know exactly what time period David is referring to in this psalm because so much of David's life, from his youth all the way up to an an aged king, so much of his life, he was surrounded by enemies and surrounded by trouble. And so it's hard to know exactly what time period he's referring to, but he's talking about people that are coming against him. Now, if you look there in your notes, in this psalm, David experiences a battle. Verses 1 through 10, he uses battle imagery, warfare type imagery. Enemies are coming against me to overthrow me, a battle. He's also experiencing a lawsuit. He uses courtroom uh, courtroom type imagery or a metaphor starting in verses 19 through 28. Look what he says uh, in verse 19. Let those uh, rejoice over, uh, let, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they, not, they, not, they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. Uh, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. And so he is feeling the weight of false accusation. Look what he says in verse 11. Malicious witnesses, courtroom imagery. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. And so the first picture he gives us is that of a battle. His enemies are trying to conquer him and overthrow him. The second imagery is that of a courtroom uh, he, is, he is being accused wrongfully, malicious witnesses, he calls them in verse 11. And the third image is that of a trap. 
verses 19 through 28. Again, he says, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. He says, verse 19, they, 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 they want to rejoice over him. They want to rejoice that they've conquered him. They've captured him. So it's the imagery of a trap. So if David here is experiencing a battle, a lawsuit with malicious witnesses, and a trap, if he's surrounded by enemies, then what does he need? Well, if you look there in your notes, David needed the Lord to be his champion to give him victory in the battle, his advocate to give him victory in the courtroom, and his deliverer to deliver him from the trap of the enemies. So look at this imagery of a champion. Look what it says in verse 5. This is really interesting. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their, dark, their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Uh, some scholars believe that when he uses the phrase here, the angel of the Lord, he is referring to Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk some more about that when we work our way through Joshua in 2017. Uh, but... Uh, some scholars believe he's talking about the second person of the Godhead. And he's saying, would you come and fight against my enemies? Would you be my champion? Would you give me victory in the day of battle? So he needed a champion. He needed an advocate. Look what it says in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? These malicious witnesses, they are, they are accusing me falsely. Rescue me from their destruction. So I need someone to come to my defense. I need a, an advocate in the courtroom to defend me against these malicious witnesses that want to lie and use deceit to destroy my life. And then he needed a deliverer. Look in verse 22. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord and my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. And so David's saying, Hey, I'm in a battle. People want to destroy me. I need a champion to fight the battle for me. I'm being accused falsely by malicious witnesses. I need an advocate to come to my defense. And my enemies have a trap set for me. They're rejoicing over my demise. I need someone to come and deliver me from their trap. So you see what's happening here? David's saying, I'm surrounded by all these enemies, and I need the Lord to help me. In all these situations, I need his help. Now, how does this apply to us? Uh, How does Psalm 35 apply to us as we think about uh, enemies? Well, I love how James Montgomery Boyce says it in his commentary on the Psalms. He writes, We can apply the words of this psalm to the devil, for he is described in Scripture precisely as David describes his enemies. He is our great foe, a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, and a slanderous accuser of our brothers, Revelation twelve ten. We are like helpless sheep before this powerful enemy. But, thank God... We have a powerful champion and advocate in King Jesus. Amen? It is not wrong for us to pray for his help for the confounding of Satan's devices and to rejoice in anticipation of the devil's ultimate and certain fall. So just like David had enemies, armies, nations, uh, treasonous insiders that were coming against him, we have enemies, don't we? And our, our foremost and most formidable enemy is Satan himself. 
And so just like David's saying, Lord, I need help against my enemies, we can look at Satan and his demons and the battles that we face in spiritual warfare, and we can say, Lord, I need your help. I need you to be my champion. I need you to be my advocate. I need you to be my deliverer. And so when we are in trouble, we need help. Sometimes, listen to this, sometimes one of the most profound prayers you can pray is the one-word prayer, help. Right? Because when you say to God, help, you're recognizing that you're out of answers, you're recognizing you're out of strength, you're recognizing that you can't fight the battle on your own, you're recognizing that you need the Lord to come to your rescue. And God is honored when you express your dependence upon Him by that one-word prayer, help. Now, you can pray longer than that if you want to, but... But it's good for your ears to hear your mouth say to God in the middle of your troubles, help, right? It's a humbling thing to say help. But, but we need to realize when we are in trouble, we need help. Which, by the way, I think may be one of the reasons God allows trouble in our lives. Have you ever found yourself just kind of cruising through life? You're kind of on cruise control spiritually. You're, you're busy and you're going here and there and doing this and that, and, and you're really not engaged with the Lord. You're not thinking a whole lot about Him. You're, you're just kind of doing your own thing and living with self-sufficiency and uh, just really a, a forgetfulness when it comes to your need for the Lord. But all of a sudden, trouble comes. You know, the wheels fall off, and you find yourself in a de- desperate situation. And what happens? For the first time in a long time, you're doing what? You're praying, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, you're talking to God. Maybe God allowed that hardship to get your focus back on him, to remind you, hey, I need help, and the Lord is my helper. So, first principle from this psalm, when we are in trouble, we need help. Here's the second principle. When we encounter evil, we should pray against it. When we encounter evil... We should pray against it. In verses 1 through 8, verses 22 through 26, David is praying against evil. And he's using very descriptive language. Verse 1, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Then in verse 22, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake, rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. And so he's calling God to to fight against his enemies. Now, that raises a very important question, which we need to grapple with. How do these imprecatory psalms, remember that word? Psalms where you're praying for an, an enemy's demise. How do these imprecatory psalms relate to the New Testament ethic? Because remember what Jesus said over in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? Turn the other cheek. And so how 
do these imprecatory psalms, praying against evil, praying for God to fight against them, praying for their overthrow, how does that relate to the New Testament ethic? Are these two separate things? Is is Old Testament kind of a different deal than the New Testament? The answer is no, because God wrote it all. One God wrote one book. It's one big story of redemption. And so we can't just say, well, there's a difference between the Testaments. We've got to think about how Psalm 35 relates to Christians. So let me give you some thoughts to think about how imprecatory psalms, psalms calling for your enemy's defeat, line up with the New Testament ethic of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So let me just give you some, some thoughts to, uh, to chew on. First, we need to make sure we are right with God. We need to make sure we are right with God. There are psalms where David sees his own sin and his tone is very different. Instead of David focusing on other folks, he's focusing on himself and saying, God, I need to be right with you. But in this psalm, there's a difference. Look what it says uh, in verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. And then look what he says in verse 19. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And so David here is saying, I'm innocent. All right? Now, they wouldn't say he was perfect, but in this situation, he was innocent, and his enemies were coming against him for no good reason. And so, as, as we think about, first of all, praying against our enemies, we need to make sure, hey, we're seeking to make sure our heart is right before the Lord, right? Before we say, hey, God, go get them, we need to think about, well, am I exemplifying a life of faithfulness to Jesus, right? If I'm looking for God to get those who are being unfaithful, would he come get me, <laughs> Right? And so before we pray about others and all this other, we need to make sure our own lives are right before the Lord. David is evaluating his life. He said, they're accusing me without cause. It's wrongful accusation. And so first of all, we need to make sure we are right with God. Evaluate our own lives. It's easy sometimes to, to point at the darkness all around us and ignore the darkness within us. Isn't it? It is. And God's honored by that. We're, we're praying for our enemies to be overthrown when God's saying, hey, you got some issues in your own life that you need to deal with. And so first, just like David does, we need to make sure we are right with God. Second, when evil people are wreaking havoc, we should pray for their overthrow. Verse 26 Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. David is is clearly praying for his enemies' overthrow. And I I believe that there is evil in our world that is so heinous and so destructive that you and I need to pray against it. For example, uh, if we were living in the 1930s and 40s, uh, I would hope that we would be praying for the overthrow of Adolf Hitler. Right? I mean, that's just pure satanic evil. And we, we, we would be, we would, we would be uh, foolish not to pray for God to overthrow that evil that was, that was affecting so many lives. You look around in our day and time, there are evils all around us. There are evil dictators even today and things that are happening that are so heinous. And it is altogether appropriate for God's people to say, God, would you bring this evil to an end? Would you 
uh, intervene in this situation, and would you stop it? It's so destructive, uh, so harmful, so wicked. God, would you bring it to an end? I think it is altogether appropriate for Christians to pray like that, to pray against evil. We need to, we need to pray against evil people when they are wreaking uh, havoc. But there's a third thing here. As we're praying, we should also pray for their conversion. This is where it gets tricky, right? When you're praying for evil people, you should also remember to say, God, would you save them? <laughs> would you stop their evil, whether it means you overthrow them, destroy them, or God, would you save them? Would you convert them? So, Ed, why would you ever pray like that? Because we see in the Bible evil people getting saved. For example, the Apostle Paul, right? His name used to be Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. If you and I were meeting uh, in the first century uh, at a gathering uh, that was um, centered around Christ, uh, we would be in danger of Saul coming in with some temple police and dragging us out into the street and throwing us in jail. He was a persecutor of the church. He approved of Christians being put to death. And yet, on the road to Damascus, what happened? Saul became Paul. He was gloriously saved by the risen Lord Jesus. And so it is important that we pray for their conversion. Uh, let me show you a couple more passages. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Everyone say all. Small word, big implications, right? All means all. For kings and all who are in high positions. That would be good leaders, bad leaders, right? Righteous men and women, evil men and women. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as you're praying for all kings and all leaders, understand that God wants all people to be saved. Everyone see that there? So as you're praying for evil's overthrow, also remember to pray that the gospel would triumph in people's lives that are blatantly opposed to Jesus. And God would show his power by saving enemies of the gospel. Then turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look in verse 3. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So Peter's saying, as believers in Christ, you need to be prepared for people who will scoff at your Christianity. They will mock you, they will malign you, they will misrepresent you, they will marginalize you. By the way, those all started with M's. That would be a good sermon. Somebody write that down. Mock, malign misrepresent, marginalize. 
That'll preach. Okay, all right. Write that down so we can save that for later. So these scoffers will come against your Christianity following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they were mocking, saying, hey, you Christians keep saying that Jesus Christ is coming back. Where is he? I don't see him coming back. He's not returning. You guys are living in a fantasy world. Well, look what he says next. He says, They deliberately, verse 5, overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, speaking of the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's coming a day when the heavens and earth will pass away and God will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. That'll be pretty incredible. Look what he says next. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't doesn't operate by our timetable. He's eternal. He goes on to say, I'm sorry, my, my page flipped. Wait for it. The Lord, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has Jesus Christ not returned yet? I mean, things are evil. I mean, in our culture, things are spiraling downward. Why doesn't Jesus come just put an end to it all? The Bible says because he's patient, and he wants to see more people saved. So as you're praying for Enemies of the gospel and enemies of Christianity and enemies in your life, make sure you also say, Lord, would you convert them? Would you, would you work in their life that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ? And so as we're praying for evil's overthrow, we're also exercising that New Testament ethic of, of, of praying for enemies, that they would be converted. The ESV Study Bible says this, Christians must keep as their deepest desire, I like that, their deepest desire, even for those who mean harm to the church, that others would come to trust in Christ and love his people. Hence, when they pray for God to protect his people against their persecutors, they should be explicit about asking God to lead such people to repentance. So yes, we pray for evil's overthrow. We should unashamedly pray for evil's overthrow. But we should also pray for evil people to get saved. Because guess what? Apart from Christ, we're all evil people. Right? I mean, that's what the Bible says. We're sinners. Uh, There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. And so remember, as you're praying against evil to pray for the evil person, that they would recognize their sin, hear the gospel, see their need for Jesus, and turn to him in repentance and faith. Now, there's one other thought here to kind of balance praying against enemies versus the New Testament ethic that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. In personal matters, David's talking about armies here. He's talking about nations, all right? In personal matters, we should leave it on, in God's hands rather than take personal vengeance. So yes, we pray against evil, but we also need to make sure that we are not taking personal vengeance, taking matters into our own hands. Look with me over in Romans chapter 12. 
Paul writes about this in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Again, this echoes the thoughts of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, God says. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, so, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You'll make him more guilty. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, when we find ourselves encountering a personal matter, where we have a personal enemy, someone personally coming against us, uh, our goal or our job is not to seek retribution. Our job is to put it in God's hands. Because God, listen to me, this is so important. This is worth you coming tonight. God will handle them and the situation better than you will. Most of the time, if you try to take matters into your own hands, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. And it won't be as satisfying as you think it's going to be. It won't. But if you leave it in God's hands and let him take care of it, he does a much, much more thorough job. So leave in God's hands. Don't seek your own vengeance. So the idea that David is praying against enemies in Psalm 35 does not give us license to seek revenge in our personal lives. That makes sense? Do we pray against evil? Yes. The overthrow of evil? Yes. But when it comes to personal interaction, we, based upon God's word, are never to take matters into our own hands and become vigilantes that want to... Uh, bring about our own form of justice. We need to leave it in God's hands. Here's what the ESV Study Bible again says about David's prayers. These curses he's calling out on his enemies are expressions of moral indignation, not of personal vengeance. These curses are expressions of moral indignation, not of of personal vengeance. And so if you see something that's a moral blight in society, do you pray against it? Yes. But the people involved, it's not for you to seek personal vengeance. It is for you to pray for their conversion. And that is how the New Testament ethic really balances with Psalm 35. Now remember, uh, these psalms, they were written to be hymns, to be sung by God's people. And so God's people were singing, Hey, God, get them! Get the javelin, you know, go after them, overthrow evil. Can you imagine singing that for a praise song on a Sunday morning? You know, uh, that's what they were doing. Um, and it is appropriate that they do that for the overthrow of evil. But we should, while praying for evil, never take personal vengeance. And so, first principle, when we are in trouble, we need help. Second principle, when we encounter evil, we should pray against it. Third principle, when we, re- when we receive God's help, we should offer our praise and thanksgiving. Now, back in Psalm 35, this psalm easily divides up into three sections. 
almost every commentator agrees on the outline. Some of the Psalms are hard to outline, but this outline is very clear because after each section, uh, David spent some time praising God. Uh, so, for example, the first section, he talks about being in a battle. And he ends with uh, a, a section of praise after that section uh, in verses 9 and 10. And then he talks about being in a courtroom, malicious witnesses. And after that section, he has another praise section. And he talks about being under trap. And at the end of the psalm, he talks about uh, uh, God's uh, grace and praises him in that. And so, when we receive God's help, when God is our champion or our advocate or our deliverer, we should offer praise and thanksgiving, just like David did. We should follow his example. Now, there are three types of praise in this psalm. First of all, there's personal praise. Personal praise. Look what he says in Psalm 35, verses 9 and 10. Then my soul, David says, when I'm in a battle and my champion, the angel of the Lord, comes and overthrows my enemies, when that happens, then my soul, personally, individually, my soul will rejoice in the Lord exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. So David's saying, when I see God being my champion, I'm going to stop and I'm going to praise him. My soul is going to praise him. I'm going to praise him from my bones. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you. In other words, David's saying, from the deepest part of who I am, you will get praise. And so... When God comes to our rescue, he should receive personal praise. He should receive thanksgiving. You know, sometimes God answers our prayers and shows up in our life in really mighty and majestic ways. And we're grateful, but we never even stop stop and articulate it, right? We just kind of go about our merry way. And we need to stop and say, thank you, personal praise. By the way, uh, what did Noah do when he got off the ark? First thing he did. Built an altar, right? Built an altar. And so we need to exemplify personal praise. Number two, corporate praise. Look in verse 17. He talks about being accused by malicious witnesses, but God comes to his help, and he says there in verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. So David here is saying, Hey, when I am with God's people, I will make sure they know that I'm grateful for your work in my life. And so it's important that we praise God individually from our own soul. It's important that we get together and praise God together in the mighty throng, right? That's that's important that we do that. That's why we get together on Sundays and, and Wednesdays so we can praise God together, corporate praise And then third, there's evangelistic praise. Evangelistic praise. After he talks about the trap and how he asked God to deliver him from their trap, look what he says in verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. By the way, that's a great verse. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Listen to me. If you're a child of God, God delights in your welfare. And by the way, that word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, which is it translated wholeness or peace. It's the greeting in Jewish culture. They say, say hello, they say shalom, right? And, and he's saying there, uh, great is the Lord who delights in the shalom, the peace of his servants. He wants us to be whole before him. 
Then my tongue, look at this, shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. In other words, David here is saying, you are so good, you are so great, you are so glorious, I want to tell somebody about you. That's evangelistic praise. We should be so uh, enamored by God's goodness in our lives that we tell other people how great our God is. Amen? That's evangelistic praise. So, when we receive God's help, we should offer our praise and thanksgiving, which leads me to the fourth point, point. then we'll take some questions, and then we'll pray and we'll close down. When attacked, if you ever find yourself attacked, we should realize that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. New Testament book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me show you a really amazing passage. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 verse 19. Peter writing to Christians who were scattered throughout uh, Asia and they were experiencing what he calls fiery trials, persecution. He says there in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So here's what he's saying. When Jesus Christ was accused wrongly and maliciously, and when he was suffering unjustly, he endured it because he loves you. He didn't sin, he didn't revile, he didn't try to get him back. He endured it because he wanted to go to the cross and die for our sins. I love what Warren Wearsby writes. David's experience in Psalm 35 reminds us of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who was also hated without a cause and falsely accused and attacked by those for whom he had shown nothing but kindness and love. God delivered David from his enemies. But the father, watch this, spared not his own son, but willingly gave him to die for the sins of the world. And so when we see David suffering unjustly, it reminds us of Jesus, the son of David, who came through the lineage of David, suffering for us. But yet, when David was delivered... Jesus was not. Jesus walked all the way to the cross and died for you and he died for me because he loves us. And that's amazing love, is it not? And so Psalm 35 helps us remember what Jesus went through, reminds us of what Jesus went through, and it it reminds us of Jesus' amazing love.